Will you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 1? We start a new book series in the book of Colossians. One of Paul's prison letters, a lot of good, rich theology for us, high Christology, but also good application for the people of God. And truth be told, I really just want to say I've preached through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So that's why we're doing Colossians next. So uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 this morning. I'll begin reading at verse 1 of Colossians chapter 1. So Colossians chapter 1, begin reading at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the spirit. Amen. Well, let us pray. Well, Lord, our God, we are thankful for the word of truth, and we are thankful for the grace of God in truth. Thank you for this blessed gospel that does go forth, And we're thankful, O God, that it does work mightily to save sinners. Only by it can you change. Only by it do you work, O God. May we not focus on other vain philosophy or empty deceit, but focus on the things that nourish, the things that change, namely Christ and him crucified. May he be proclaimed this day. May he be honored this day. And may you produce in us, O God, an increase in faith. May you work in us love for all the saints May you strengthen our hope in you as we await the new heavens and new earth. And we pray, O God, in this, that we would bear fruit, that we would honor you, that we would glorify you, that we would evidence that we are your people. And thank you that you give us such assurances, O God, by your word and as you work in our lives. And so we pray, O God, today would be a great day of strengthening for your people as you advance your new creation, as you bring in that new creation through the salvation of sinners. May today be a day of strengthening. May today be a day of growth. May today be a day of encouragement for your saints. And we also pray, oh God, may today be the day of salvation for those who do not know you. Work in them, we pray. Move by your spirit, we pray. We pray that you give us illumination from on high to better understand what your word is saying, oh God. And may we take every thought captive, every idea captive to the obedience of Christ and your word. And help us to do this by your spirit, for we truly need you every hour. And, oh God, we need you this hour now. So help us, we pray, by your spirit. May you be glorified in all things. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, one common image for the Christian walk, for the Christian life, is this image of a branch that bears fruit. A branch that grows, a branch that seems to exhibit the fruit that that it ought to bear. And the Christian life really ought to be one of perpetual growth, regardless of how slow it may seem at times. We ought to be growing. We ought to be learning. We ought to be advancing in the things of God and how we also how we ought to honor and glorify God. 
we ought to then ask ourselves, how is it exactly that we then grow in the truth? How is it that we exactly bear fruit? How is it that we exactly begin to exhibit these things? And perhaps we could say, or a better way to ask the question is what, or who is it that feeds us and refreshes us so that we can bear fruit? This is what Paul seems to address here in, at the beginning of the letter to the church at Colossae. And it's something that he's going to address throughout the entire letter. How is it that this church may continue to bear fruit? He's been encouraged by what he has heard about them. There's also a threat to that very growth, that threat to the very truth, that threat to the gospel, namely false teachers who have come in and are beginning to teach other things. So Paul writes to this church to encourage them. He writes to this church to build them up. But he also writes to this church to warn them about the false teaching that could come upon them, and some may be carried away by such false teaching. So that's why he writes the church at Colossae. He's writing from his first imprisonment. He's writing from a prison cell, likely the imprisonment that is found at the end of the book of Acts uh, in Rome. His first imprisonment, he's going to be released. And then we have his last imprisonment, which is the book of 2 Timothy, where he knows he is going to die. And so from his prison cell here, he writes to encourage them. He writes to the church to give them strength. He writes to the church to warn them and encourage them in the most holy faith. Because the issue of the Colossian heresy uh, is something that would have uh, plagued the people that were there. And probably what it was, commentators are divided on this very thing, on what it could be, Perhaps it was a blending of Greek mythology and Jewish law, Jewish Judaism, a mixing and blending of Jewish and Greek ideas. So it's syncretism, a blending, rather than actually focusing in on what Christ has said according to the gospel. And certainly we'll see a lot of this as this unfolds, but he calls it a vain philosophy. He calls it empty deceit. He calls it the tradition of men, and those things do not bear fruit. Because that's the problem that is implied here in this Thanksgiving. The problem of a fruitless word and a fruitless people. People who do not hear the word that nourishes and refreshes. And if they don't hear that thing which builds them up and gives them strength and causes them to grow, they're going to be a fruitless people. And that's one of the problems of heresy. One of the problems of false teaching is it does nothing for the people of God does nothing for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, but rather it not only does not build up, but rather decays and rots the mind, as Paul says in other places in his word. And so he writes to encourage them. Here's how you bear fruit as the new creation people. And so in verses one through eight, in his typical thanksgiving, Paul thanks God for both the faith and the fruit of the Colossian church. The faith and the fruit of the church at Colossae, and we'll look at this under two headings this morning. First of all, thanksgiving for faith, love, and hope, verses 1 through 5. Thanksgiving for faith, love, and hope, verses 1 through 5. And secondly, thanksgiving for fruit, verses 6 through 8. So thanksgiving for faith, love, and hope, and thanksgiving for fruit. So let's first look at thanksgiving for faith, love, and hope in verses 1 through 5. And notice in verses 1 and 2, we see a typical greeting for the Apostle Paul that he typically gives as he writes his letter. And so notice we see the author there, Paul, 
an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. And even though it is a typical greeting, there is still much theology, things that we can draw out in these blessed greetings that he gives. One thing, he always likes to affirm his office. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He has some clout. He has some authority. God has called him to be an apostle of the church, the universal office of the church to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. He did not do it by the will of man. He did not self-appoint. He did not say, hey, I'm going to go preach because I really want to. God called him to do that. The risen Lord Christ called him to do that. It was not by his will, but it was by the will of God. And his conversion, his calling is recorded for us in Acts three times, Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. So he is called by the will of God. He is affirmed by the church. Any office requires both the call of the Lord internally and the affirmation by the church to send out as well, which he receives uh, in the book of Acts. And also Timothy, our brother, is mentioned Timothy, obviously, is a faithful companion to Paul. He's likely his secretary, likely the one writing out the letter. It's certainly by Paul's words. 118, or 418 highlights that for us, but Timothy is helping him out as well. And the letter is clearly for the church at Colossae, a city in Asia Minor, a city that was not founded by Paul. In verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, "...as many as have not seen my face in the flesh." Likely it's founded by Epaphras, who we'll see in verse 7. So Paul hears about the good things going on there from Epaphras, and so he writes to encourage them. And so he's writing to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Now again, it's easy for us to just brush through these readings, which I typically do when I'm reading it, and you probably typically do when you're reading it. And we typically use the language saints very often when we talk about the people of God. We talk about the saints to whom we pray for. Do we ever stop and consider what saints actually means? I mean, saints and what, what it boils down to are those who've been set apart by God, those who've been chosen by God, those who've been uh, redeemed by God. It was used in the Old Testament to describe the Old Testament people. And now in the New Covenant era, it's used to describe the church. The saints of the kingdom of God, which is the language used in Daniel chapter 7, looking at the, the, the work that the Son of Man would do. The kingdom of the saints would be forever. Persia or Babylon would fall. Persia would fall. Greece would fall. Rome would fall. But the kingdom of the Son of Man shall reign forever. And the language of kingdom does come up later on in chapter 4, verse 11. The language of saints comes up again as the inheritance uh, in verse 12. So saints is an important uh, term we ought to appreciate. And also faithful brethren. These brethren who have the threat of perhaps heresy coming in, Paul has been informed by Epaphras. They're dependable. They're faithful people. They do not waver. They're not carried about to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So he is writing to uh, tell them who they are. But even as he tells them who they are, it is an encouragement to them. Faithful brethren who are in Christ, who are in Colossae. And one last thing that is very interesting. Notice the language in Christ and in Colossae. And the way in which the Greek kind of, uh, the Greek actually bookends verse two in this way. To those in Colossae, 
saints and faithful brethren in Christ. He's highlighting their location temporally. He's highlighting that they are a local body of believers, highlighting where they gather, but who they are in spiritually. That is, they are in Colossae, but they are also in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the beauty is Christ builds churches, builds local churches as he advances his universal church in this world, in him. And we see the fruit of that with the church in Colossae. Saints and faithful brethren in Christ and in Colossae. And he says to them, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he wants grace to be bestowed upon them. He wants grace to be seen upon them. He wants them to grow in grace and understanding. Uh, And so he encourages them with this greeting. So again, there's some good encouraging theology, saints, faithful brethren in Christ, in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's who he is. That's who he's writing to. And notice, uh, as he typically does, as he begins to enter into the, or before he gets into the the body of the letter, he usually gives some sort of thanksgiving, some sort of prayer, some sort of both thanksgiving for what they have done, but also what he's praying for, for them. And so he says in verses three and four, we see thanksgiving for faith and love. Sorry, verses three through five, faith, love, and hope. Notice verse three, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ by praying always for you. How is it that he gives thanksgiving? How is it that he expresses this thanksgiving? It's through prayer. And he hears of what they have done, and he praises God Almighty through his prayer. Yes, brethren, it's good to sing praises. He will talk about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in Colossians chapter 3. But another important way in which we praise God is through praying to thank him, to give him glory for all that he does, not just for us, but for the church around the world as well. So while Paul is in prison, well, he's in shackles. He's probably in prison with Epaphras, Philemon 23. That's how he hears about the church in Colossae. He's got a fellow servant with him there. And he's like, and as they're, you know, they're not moaning and grumbling. He's like, yeah, God's done a wonderful thing in Colossae. So Paul's encouraged. Paul's lifted up. Paul is thrilled with what is happening. And so he praises and he he sees the supernatural work that God is doing. And he cannot but praise. So we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ by praying always. And again, the recipient, much Trinitarian language, even in prayer, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of the reason you're in Christ and we see your love in the spirit, verse eight. So very Trinitarian, we pray to the father through the son by the spirit. And so notice what's so special about this. There's a connection between us and between though, and between what Christ has done. Notice he's the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to two, both natures, because there's one person in two natures. That is, he is father to the son, according to his divinity. The son is eternally begotten of the father. He's also the father of the son who came into the world, for he is fully God and fully man. And one thing that is so special about what our Christ does as he takes on human flesh, and as he takes on human flesh, we call that the mission. I've used this language a lot lately. 
And that mission is an echo. It reflects that eternal relation, that eternally begottenness. As the son takes on human flesh in his mission, it reveals God who is father, son, and spirit. And as he does so, he operates as our brother. He operates as he lives a perfect life. He operates to come live, die, and rise again. That sinner's might have communion with God. And notice what he, the connection between verse 3 and verse 2. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But verse 2, our Father, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. How is it that we can call God our Father unless it is found in the finished work of the Son? It highlights our blessed communion with the God of heaven and earth. That communion that was broken with Adam has now been restored and far greater than what Adam experienced in the garden. We have an unbroken communion that shall never be taken away in the last Adam. So he praises God for this very thing. And all of this, this communion or this understanding of our communion with God impacts how we view our hope and how we view our Christian walk, which I hope to unpack more as we go through. So he thanks God, and he gives thanks by prayer. Now, if you're like me, you understand, theoretically, that prayer is a most blessed spiritual exercise. We also understand, practically, it's very hard to do, because our minds wander, our minds think of other things We get super busy and we just don't really prioritize it if we're just being honest. Martin Luther said, when I have more things I have to do in the day, I need to pray more. We don't usually think that way, right? We usually think I got more things to do in the day, I'm going to pray less. But brethren, we need to pray. Praying is a blessed thing. Prayer is us talking to God based on his promises that he has said. Prayer is an exercise of faith. God, have you not said God, will you not do according to what you have said? Because so often we get perplexed by the world. So often we get concerned and we don't see things happening the way we want. So what do we have to do? Go to God in faith. Go to God through prayer. Go to God in trust. And may I say, if you struggle with prayer, one thing we can glean from what Paul does here is perhaps one way we can pray is by counting our blessings. Just stop. If you're struggling to pray, meditation is usually a good precursor to praying, right? We stop and consider. We stop and think. And sometimes as we think, we start to pray, right? We start counting all that God has done. And we ought to have a bajillion blessings, right? We always forget some of them all the the time, but God gives us so many good things temporally in this world, He gives us so many blessings. Everything we have from God, as we've been highlighted in Ecclesiastes, and we'll highlight again tonight, is a gift of God. And we ought to praise him for that. The fact that in him, we live and move and have our being. Tonight, we're going to see we ought to receive the day when God gives us blessings. We ought to receive the mundane things of life. I'm not saying there is not sorrow. I'm not saying there is not sadness. I'm not saying there is not hardship in this world, but that doesn't nullify all the good things he has done. I just talked about the temporal stuff. We're not redemptive, redeemed, forgiven, saved. How can we not praise and pray to God for all of those good things? 
Davenant says, John Davenant says, the time of praying is therefore the most convenient time for rendering thanks to God, for prayer is the elevation of the mind to God. And then especially thanks are to be given to God when the mind glows with pious affections. For thanks are accounted dry and sterile before God, which proceed only from the outward lips. They must be drawn from the bottom of the heart, which, becoming uh, fervent by prayer, is fain to celebrate the glory and the praises of God, not for form's sake, but seriously. What he's really saying there is ponder and think. And hopefully as that happens, as we stop and consider all that God has done, how can we not but pray unto him? If we struggle with prayer, I know prayers can be cold and dead sometimes. We still ought to pray. And sometimes in the process of praying, somehow they stop stop becoming cold and dead in that moment. God is very good to us to hear our prayers based on his promises, not on the quality of my prayers. But nonetheless, we still ought to pray to God. And hopefully we ought to pray with stirred hearts, pray from the bottom of our hearts, even though we struggle with that very thing. And one way to help us in that struggle is to recount our blessings. And this is what he is doing here. And the specific blessings he's recounting begin in verse, uh, begin in verse four. Since three, I guess three things or two things. And the third is kind of the grounding for those other two. But fourth, since we heard of your faith in Christ and of your love for all the saints, faith, love, and hope. You're probably thinking when you, I was saying faith, love, and hope, Mike, isn't the other way around faith, hope, and love? Well, not in a cut here. Certainly faith, hope, and love is in first uh, Corinthians, but here it is faith, love, and hope. The three cardinal virtues of our Christian walk, the three cardinal virtues of our Christian's existence and how vital all three of these things are for us in a dangerous world how important they are for us as we walk in this fallen, present evil age. Faith in Christ, love for his body, and hope for the world to come. And the first one he says is faith in Christ Jesus. Now, faith, as I believe it is defined, and as we see it in the scriptures, is trust and belief in the truth. Christ hath said, his apostles hath said, do you believe it to be true? Christ lived, died, and rose again. Do you believe that to be true? And certainly we believe that savingly to the saving of our souls, but the Christian walk is still a walk of faith, is it not? Trusting in what God has said, because guess what? So often we see things happening around the world, things happen in our life, and we go, is God really working? Are God's promises really true? Did God really say And so often we have to come back to God's word, give us ourselves a slap in the face, talk to ourselves for a sec, and remind ourselves based on what God has said, that he has said such things. And in the wake of heresy, in the wake of men who are downplaying the work of Christ, faith in Christ is absolutely most vital. In 123, he says, if indeed you continue steadfast in the faith, in the truth, grounded in it and steadfast, and are not moved and are not moved away from the hope, faith and hope of the gospel, which you heard. Do we believe God's ways are right? 
And think about this for a second. There were men coming in who were saying, we have salvation. It's not faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how it works. You have to have special knowledge. And perhaps one of the, the background for some of the heretics that were at Colossae were men who were informed or influenced by the initiatory rites in Greek mythology. You'd have a special experience. And only it, is, it was only for a select few. It was only for special people who entered into the temple by experience. And so what's he say? What's Paul trying to combat here? It's not based on that. It's based on faith in Christ. And let's be honest, when it comes to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, when it comes to our Christian walk, sometimes we don't think God's ways work, right? Here's how you build a church. Have a rockin' band. The website needs to be high-tech. I'm not saying you can't have a high-tech website, but it really needs to be just spot on. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about that stuff. Sin, people want to be encouraged and uplifted. Just give me five reasons on how to better I live a better life. That's what the focus is. It is in the here and now. And of course, people want their, you know, tick, uh, itchy ears scratched. And so they come and hear such things. I mean, Paul warns about that in 2 Timothy 4. You know, if we were to look at what the Bible says about how to, you know, advance the church and grow the church, just preach the word. I mean, I mean, nobody would go to those conferences, right? I mean, nobody would attend such things. They would laugh the Apostle Paul off the stage when it comes to what the purpose and function of the church ought to be. Do we believe God is actually speaking in his word? Do we believe he can really work through his word? Do we believe he can really save? Do we trust in the promises of Christ. So we ought to have faith in Christ. And the Colossian church, in the wake of threats, had faith in Christ and his promises and were not going to waver. But also, that faith is then worked and exhibited through, or uh, 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 yeah, worked and exhibited through love. Notice, of your faith and of your love for all the saints. And I love what John Eady has to say, an old Scotsman. He said, in itself, this love is really only a form or manifestation of the love to the divine object of their faith, Christ, for it is affection to Christ's image in the saints. What he is saying there is our vertical relationship with God must be manifested in our horizontal relationship with fellow believers. And the reason that is the case is because Christ is the head and the church is the body. And what's so beautiful about the book of Colossians, he's going to talk about Christ being the image of the invisible God. And then in Colossians 3, he's going to talk about how we are in the image of Christ in the new man. And so what happens here, what we see here, is if we are in Christ, if we are God's chosen people, we ought to love the saints. We ought to love the church. Has Christ not died for his church? Should we then not love the brethren? Should we then not care for the brethren? Should we then not think of others better than ourselves? Love is that outward, beneficent, good action towards those who are in Christ. First and foremost, I'm not saying we can't care for the people in this world. We can't love our literal neighbor who are not saved. 
But notice the emphasis of the church first, or the priority. Love Christ, love the saints, then you can consider the world. A lot of people don't like that, right? We ought to be kind and generous, but first and foremost, the church ought to make sure her people are kept and protected. And the Colossians did a good job with this. Probably what it was is they tangibly cared for those in their congregation, tangibly cared for the churches around, and also perhaps as those who were traveling, Paul heard of their hospitality towards the saints. And remember at that time, they didn't have Holiday Inn. I mean, they had inns, but it wasn't like Holiday Inn. You would never want to go to an inn because bad things happened at an inn. So people had to rely on family or Christians when they traveled. It was a tangible way to show hospitality. And the Colossian church perhaps showed such things. And love really is an evidence, not a means to, but an evidence of one's salvation. In Galatians 5, he talks, uh, Paul talks about in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. Love is a fruit of the spirit, Galatians 5, 22, and also then uh, and love also is manifested as we consider others. And it's summarized in the golden rule. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is, we shouldn't be angry and mean. We shouldn't be lustful. We should work hard and not be lazy. We shouldn't lie. That is one we should be loving and kind and patience and forbearing. That's what love is. And he will unpack that for us in Colossians 3 when he talks about the characteristics of the new man. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If someone says something mean to you, that is not a good reason to leave the church. You must go and deal with them. A lot of people leave churches for dumb reasons. Some good reasons, but just because someone looked at you funny or mean mugged you, or you have to deal with those things. So he's very clear. One way we ought to love one another is understand there's going to be sin and we ought to forgive one another when those sins arise. And if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So if there's other things we can unpack there, and we will unpack it when we get there, and we'll unpack some more of that as we go through this morning, but that is what love is. It ought to be a characteristic and a quality of the people of God. All those things are summarized. What we ought to be as Christians should be summarized in our love for all the saints, the set-apart ones, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's thankful for their faith, thankful for their love, and notice the reason and basis for their love in verse 5. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Why is this the basis for love? Why is it hope that is the one that grounds us in our love? Perhaps what he is saying here. And as he says, we have this hope laid up for us in heaven. That is, we have a heavenly inheritance in the Lord Jesus Christ, something that awaits us. But it's not just something for the future. It's also something for us now. It's something we possess now, 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, we are citizens of the new heavens and new earth. We are citizens of the new creation. And really, as I highlighted many times, looking at Ephesians, when we seek to live the Christian life, what we are seeking to do is live as the new man, which we already are in the Lord Jesus Christ by his finished work. In Colossians 3, he says, put off the old man and put on the new. Again, the implication, I think, will be you're already the new man in him. You're in the last Adam, and as such, we ought to live as that last Adam. So you see the basis for, uh, for the love that we ought to bear? It's who we are already in Christ. We are of the new creation, and we ought to love like the people of the new creation. Christ has died for her. Christ has treasured her. Christ has uh, brought a people, uh, brought, that, brought that people and saved a people. And, we, and there is a hope that awaits the people of God, but that gives us strength and encouragement, not just for the future, but to help us now. See how the end times views can be, our eschatology is actually very practical. It's not all about helicopters and the end of the world and all that sort of stuff. I mean, yeah, it is the end of the world, but, but it really is what we are in Christ and what he has done for us as we are in that most blessed last Adam. And as we have this hope, it also helps us to be patient. There is something better that awaits. If there was nothing better that awaits, dear brethren, we would live a very despairing life. But there is something that awaits. And again, God and his providence, Ecclesiastes has been very good, and it's very similar. Uh, we'll highlight similar things tonight in Ecclesiastes 9. But it is a hope because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. And notice how this is spread. It is through the word being communicated. After, or of which you heard before, in the word of the truth of the gospel. They heard the gospel of salvation. They heard the hope of eternal life. They believed upon it, but through faith, and they increase in love as the people of the new creation. And what this really should highlight for us, brethren, is how all of these virtues, faith, hope, and love, especially that hope aspect, helps us in life. We have a Christ we can lean upon that we can look to in faith. We have our marching orders. God's very clear how we ought to live. And we also have a hope that awaits us and a grounding by the spirit, an encouragement by the spirit. All these things give us that blessed assurance of who we are and to help us in the face of threats, help us in the face of sin, help us in the face of the world. And what's interesting in Colossians 3, verse 1, before he goes on to talk about all the practical things we ought to do, he says in verse 1, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not things on the earth. So often we want those 10 rules on how to be a better, live a better life. So often people are like, you're just so doctrinal. You're not very practical. Brethren, doctrinal, doctrine is practical. Set 
your mind on the truth. Set your mind on the things that are above. Be nourished in God's word. And even as Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you. And he's going to go on to say in Colossians, as he prays for them, what he prays for them is that they be filled with the knowledge of God, growing in spiritual understanding, that they may walk worthy, that they may be fruitful, that they may increase in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all his might. Doctrine is most important. Right doctrine, as we say, leads to right practice. And if we are the resurrected man in the resurrected man, then we ought to live in the life that we, are, uh, that we have in the one who is the last Adam, setting our mind on the things that are above where Christ is at the right hand of God. That is immensely practical to help us in our increase in faith, hopefully our increase in love, and increase our hope in Christ. Well, that's what Paul thanks them for, gives thanks to God for, their faith, hope, and love, or love and hope. Let's then look secondly at thanksgiving for fruit. Notice in verses six through eight, especially verse six, which has come to you as it also has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and the truth. So what he's saying there, which has namely the gospel of Christ has spread. What he's trying to highlight here is there is widespread testimony of the work of God in the gospel versus these rogue, philosophical, heretical men. There is something to be said. I know sometimes the minority position, a majority position isn't always right, but here what he's trying to say is the thing that brought about change in the world was not vain philosophy. What brought about change in the world was the gospel of free and sovereign grace him in him we proclaim or him we proclaim as he will say often throughout this book because he wants them to be grounded in that very thing he's encouraging them the gospel that you have is the truth and the gospel that you have is the one that actually brings about change and what he's saying here it is clear the gospel has gone into uh, worked among you and the gospel has worked in the world By the end of the book of Acts, for all intents and purposes, the gospel has spread to the ends of the earth. I remember going through undergrad, and there's a view that says, well, Christ isn't coming back until the gospel gets to all the ends of the earth. Brethren, if that were true, you know what we should do? And I'm going to sound like a fanatic here for a second. I'm not. I'm going to sound like a, you know, end time enthusiast. But what we should really do is actually sell all we have. If really is, ends of the earth need to hear, then the, uh, the kingdom comes in. Sell all we have and put that money to either build a giant speaker or blimps. I don't know why I thought blimps whenever I heard that at undergrad. Maybe it's because you're going slow and not a plane zooming over so people can hear. But if it is the case, all would hear, then why don't we do that? Why don't we usher in the kingdom that way? Not saying we don't want to preach the gospel and spread to the ends of the earth, but for all intents and purposes, we don't know the day or the hour when Christ is coming back. And it will be the last elect person who is saved and bing, new heavens and new earth. But we don't know that. 
So I do believe we still must spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. But by the end of Acts, the gospel has spread to the ends of the earth. So it has gone. It has come. It is still going. It has also in all the world. And notice what it does is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you. Again, that image of a plant that seeks to bear fruit. And what he is saying here is only God's word and the gospel of truth can bring such change to produce and to nourish God's people, to take a dead sinner and give them new life, to nourish that redeemed sinner in their Christian walk. The word of God and Christ is what we need to be fed in. And what's so very special what is, uh, with what is going on here is I do think he is alluding to the old creation and making application to the new creation. G.K. Bale seems to point this out, and some people might think it's far-fetched, but I don't think it's as far-fetched as one might think. The language of bearing fruit, one of the words that is found there is actually used in Genesis 1.28, to be fruitful and multiply. So there's an echo with the word there. What's also interesting is Paul himself will repeat the same phrase in 1 verse 10, that we be fruitful in every good work. And there is this theme in the scriptures with that creation mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. It's applied to Noah in a refracted sense, in a fallen sense. It was given to Israel, be fruitful, multiply. Genesis 17 and Genesis 48 and other places as well. But Adam failed, right? Noah failed. Israel failed. So someone else must bring in the, uh, the, the command or fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply. And in Jeremiah 23.3, talking about the branch whose kingdom shall be one of righteousness, he shall regather and his kingdom shall be fruitful and his kingdom shall multiply. And to continue on this theme is the beautiful thing about what Paul is going to say about Christ in verses 15 through 18 is he's going to compare Christ as creator, the invisible image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation, but also go to speak of him as the firstborn from the dead or the firstborn over the new creation. And the implication seems to be that what the first Adam failed in brought sin and misery into this old creation. The last Adam is fulfilling in the new. And those who are citizens of the new heavens, citizens of the new creation, will bear fruit and spread his glory to the ends of the earth. And isn't this what he has done? He has spread his glory to the ends of the earth. And we, as God's people, bear fruit as his image, which he shall speak about in Colossians 3. You see, the old creation is a type of the new fulfilled in the last Adam, Christ. And we'll see more of this in just a moment. But Davenant says, the apostle, therefore, here speaks of that spiritual fruit, which is perceived in conversion 
and in the entire change of manners and hearts, when men overwhelmed before in vices begin to bloom in virtue and become resplendent in holiness. What Adam failed to do, Christ does. And he brings about change in undeserving people. And the source really is the grace of God in the truth. And that's what he says. Bringing forth fruit in you, as it also is among you, so in the world too, since the day you heard and knew. You heard it, you embraced it, you accepted, you rested, you received the grace of God in truth. The gospel is a message of the grace of God in truth. And only God by his supernatural work can transfer someone from the power of darkness and convey them into the kingdom of the son of his love. Only in Christ, who is the true vine, can God's people bear fruit. And even then, it's by the power of God that we bear fruit. And fruit itself is an evidence that we are redeemed and saved in him. Since the day you heard it, Again, vain philosophy cannot do such things. Man-made traditions cannot do such things. Only the gospel of free and sovereign grace, only God who has said he will work through that gospel of free and sovereign grace, take a dead sinner and make them alive in Christ. Take someone who is bound by their vices and redeem them and give them new life in him. And in him, we have salvation, and in him, we have communion. This is another thing that Paul is going to highlight as the book unfolds. Perhaps one of the views of the false teaching was as they had this secret experience is that they were able to pierce into the temple above and have communion with God. Well, there is still Adam-type language here, isn't there? I've argued before that Now, based on the views of others, which I think are right, Adam was a priest in the garden, was he not? The garden was a temple, and the temple signifies communion with God. Adam broke that, and we certainly see the temple in a uh, for Israel, but it was not its full temple that would come later on. And so, what Paul is saying here is, what was lost in the first Adam? Communion with God has been restored and is far greater in the last Adam, in the new creation. And the reason is, the last Adam is the temple. That's why in 2.9 he says, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's why John says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. You see, brethren, we have communion with God because of that last Adam. He is the one who gives us faith, builds us up in love, gives us that hope, causes us to bear fruit, but we do so in him with God as our father. It is the grace of God in truth. And notice how we learn of such things. Verse seven and eight. As you learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared us your love in the spirit. Epaphras was perhaps their pastor, their founder. 
He was the one who built them up. He is the one who preached and nourished them. And notice the glowing language Paul says here of Epaphras. Some say it's the same as Epaphroditus. Perhaps, I don't know if that's the case or not, but at least there could be two, maybe one, I don't know, but at least he's speaking about Epaphras here. Our dear fellow servant. So he's a mass servant of Christ, fellow, perhaps literal, he's in prison with them as well. But notice what he says about him, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. A faithful, dependable man who preaches and teaches the word of God faithfully, regardless of what suffering may come because he's in prison, regardless of what threats may come, regardless of what itching ears wish to hear, he is faithful. And he's encouraging them and giving them, he's trying to remind them of the blessedness of the one to whom God has given unto them. And I think faithful minister is a good description of what all of us ought to be, what a pastor must be. I know I can scold sometimes and harp on what a pastor must be, but I don't care if you're Charles Spurgeon. I don't care if you're the grand muckamuck of Kalamazoo. My mom used to say that to me when I was five and I would grumble and complain. Oh, I'm the grand muckamuck of Kalamazoo. AKA, listen to me. It doesn't matter if they're the greatest and most gifted, if they're not faithful. If they're not faithful in the little things, there is no way we're going to give them responsibility in the greater things. Everybody wants the preaching aspect. Everybody wants to be seen. Nobody wants to do the basics in life. That's why it's important when we look for an elder, brethren. They're faithful at prayer meeting, faithful morning and evening, and faithful on Wednesday nights as well. Basic Christianity. That's, I mean, that's all we're asking for. I mean, that's all we're looking for. And hopefully there is some theological acumen as well that we have to see and test and understand. But faithfulness, may pastors be found faithful, not necessarily successful. And so dependable is what a pastor and we all ought to be uh, uh, with the people um, uh, as the people of God. So faithful minister, this is glowing remarks for, for, for Epaphras here. In verse 8, who also declared us your love in the spirit. They may be from differing in different parts uh, spatially, but they are again in Christ and they have love for one another by the power of the spirit. But I think, again, one thing we can see here, I think uh, with respect to this bearing fruit, how is it that one bears fruit? I'm going to sound like a broken record, but what is it that uh, helps us grow in faith, hope, and love, and evidence all those things? Well, the word of God, right? Even too, in Colossians 3, he's going to say, may the word of God dwell in you richly. May you stir up one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What he's saying here is you're faithful to the gatherings, faithful on Sundays, faithful in your Bible reading, brethren, setting our mind on the things that are above. Brethren, that is how we grow. I don't say that to be a jerk. I don't say that to be a giant, grumpy curmudgeon. I say that for your good. You see, brethren, the meal of the day is both services. That's hard. I know in our modern context, we have one, the two services thing is a new thing for a lot of people to grasp when they come into our churches, but that was what it was for centuries. And so how is it that God's people are half as educated, 
Half is in the word. Half is uh, 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 built up in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So often we want to do all these other things. We want to 5,000 ministries, counseling. Brother, I'm not against counseling, by the way. But the best thing for God's people is to be under the word of God and to be built up in it. He says, how is it that you bear fruit after you heard the word of the gospel? Something happens when we worship brethren. It's not just speaking, but it is God who is working through his word as it goes forth. The saints are nourished. The saints are refreshed that they may bear fruit. I probably told this illustration before, but John Chrysostom, golden mouth. He once had someone, you know, speak. We speak with someone on a Sunday after the service, and they're telling them the struggles that uh, they were going through. And John just listened, and then he said, okay, see you Sunday. Again, I'm not against counseling, but if we're not going to have our steady diet, it's really like those weight loss commercials. You probably get them on Facebook all the time. Here, I had this pill in five days. I lost 500 pounds, like those types of things. Without a proper steady diet, nothing is going to change. That's why we say that it's for your good. It is for your benefit. Brethren, how can we go through the day and through the week being half filled, half fed, or not fed at all. Now, I understand, providentially hindered, I get all that. But as far as we are able, let us be under the word of God, for it is what works so mightily. It is what saves. Again, I love what, it's not Davenant, but he's quoting Clement of Alexandria, and it just sums up this sort of new creation focus with a old creation illustration. He says, the gospel of Christ hath tamed the fiercest beasts. That is very wicked men. It is God in his word, by his power, that saves through his gospel. It is God in his word that builds up the brethren, ministers to the brethren, and equips the brethren for this life that we might love one another, that we might grow in our faith, that we might grow in our hope. That is what the word is meant to be for us. And when we consider all of these things, brethren, consider God's goodness, consider all the things that he has done, it should cause us to praise and honor and glorify, should it not? His word saves his word works, his word strengthens. Do we believe that very thing? And if you're an unbeliever here today, the only thing that can save is Christ. If you believe on him, if you look to him in faith, believe that he lived, died, and rose again, you shall have everlasting life. And God shall bring forth fruit, and God shall give you a hope of an inheritance that is unfading, undefiled. Otherwise, if you do not believe, you will die with this old creation. Believe on Christ and be part of the new. Let us pray. Lord, our God, you are so very patient with us and so very gracious towards us. So often, oh God, it feels like our fruit is but a little bit of growth. Oh God, as we see examine our own hearts and lives, but we're thankful that your word does work. 
Your word does save. Your gospel does bring forth change in people. That you do tame the fiercest beasts, O God, and you do take very wicked men and give them new life. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for your mercy and goodness. Thank you for what you did to the church in Colossae. And thank you, O God, that what you've done for what you've done for many of us here. We pray, O God, also that if there are any here today who do not know you, we pray that today would be the day of their salvation, that you would work in them a change, help them to be pricked in their hearts so they shall die in Adam and die with this old creation, that they might believe now while they still have breath. Make them part of the new creation, O God. Change their hearts, we pray, by your spirit. And thank you, O God, that you do such wonderful things. And thank you, O God, that you increase our faith, you increase our love, and increase our hope. And we pray, O God, that what is spoken of 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 the Colossian church here would be spoken of of us, that we would not waver, but trust in Christ, that we would have love for one another, that we'd have love for the saints, love for brethren, love for our neighbors. We pray, O God, we would exhibit such things by your strength. We also pray that all these things would be grounded in our hope, that we would set our mind on the things that are above where Christ is at your right hand. Help us, O God, by your strength to love your word, to be under your word, to be diligent with your word. Thank you, O God, that in these things, it's what feeds us and gives us strength day by day. You feed us and give us strength day by day in your word. So help us, O God, as we are weak and feeble. May we have been fed this morning with you. May you enlarge our hearts, increase our faith, and may we be a people who praise. May we pray with faith and trust and understanding, but pray with thanksgiving. Thank you, O God, for all that you've done for us. May you bear, bring forth fruit in our hearts, and may you bring forth fruit throughout the ends of the earth as well. Be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.